Welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show. I'm Josh Patterson, joined here with Matt Chandler. Looking forward to episode 12. We're going to talk about a bunch of different things on the show today. I'm really excited about it. We're going to jump off talking about family discipleship, summer family activity guide that we provide here at the Village Church. And then here in a few minutes, going to be joined by Mike Cosper, going to be on the show with us. Cosper's brilliant. Love he's Mike. brilliant. Yeah, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, everything from liturgy to media to culture to the arts and how this all plays out in life itself. And so really looking forward to that conversation. But as we enter into the summer... And it's a, here. What is the summer? The summer's here. Yeah. Yeah, my kids have been out of school for a couple yeah. of weeks now, which is crazy. That is crazy. Has it been a couple of weeks or has it just been like a week? It, it feels like a <laughs> lifetime. I don't know. They're, they're not in school. That's no, all I know. That's true. That's all I know. They but, you know, one of the resources that we provide here at the church is called the Summer Family Activity Book. And this is something we've been doing for a number of years. And it really fits in line with our time, moments, and milestones approach to family discipleship. And what we're trying to do is to provide a resource for parents around family discipleship in the summertime. And Matt, I know you've used this a ton. I've used it. And so let's just kind of talk a little bit about the guide. I do want to say it is available on yeah. the website. You can download the whole PDF if you are not here at the Village Church. If you are at the Village, uh, it should be in the foyer. You can pick it up on the weekend. And uh, just excited to jump into that and and yeah, I, I think as the summer comes, there, there's an opportunity for intentionality that that is harder, not impossible, but harder um, during the school year with a thousand other things going on. But in the summer, in some ways, I want to be careful, but in some ways life slows down a little bit more and you've got a lot more time, intentional time with your kids, or at least you can if you, right. if you think through it. And so what we wanted to do is one of the things I've found over, you know, 20 years of pastoral ministry now is that that there's this there's an idea that that parent that parents have that they just simply don't know what to do and they don't they love ideas when they hear about them but they don't really know how to kind of implement those into their own lives into their own interaction with their children so the the guide's meant to just kind of do that to guide you through those things and so for the last gosh three or four summers Lauren and I, I I've, I've sat down I've looked at our calendar it's taken about an hour to plan out the summer right and and so an hour is nothing. Um, for the benefit of what two and a half months of intentional conversations, trainings, and evenings set aside to marvel um, have purchased for our family. Yeah, you, you think about with the summer, it can be this daunting reality of I wake up every day, especially if you have a parent who's not working and, and the kids are there. Yeah. And if your kids are like my kids, it's what are we going to do today? Uh, what are we going to do tomorrow? And you get that day after day week after week. And what this guide does provide you is some answers. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, you can thumb through it and find some answers along the way of, Hey, let's, let's, let's try this. Let's do this activity. Uh, as we're doing a road trip, here's some things we can do in the car. Yeah. Uh, here's some ideas that we can do as a family on an evening. And well, one of my favorites, and, and I don't know if it's in the new guide, I haven't looked through it yet. That's on, on my task bar right now, but the um, one of my favorites from the last couple of years that has been in there is to write out these kind of cool moments uh, that we're grateful for as the, and then put them in the jar. Yeah, the summer memory yeah. jar. And then yeah, at we the did end the of the thing. summer, pull all those memories out. Right. And then it, it becomes, as we move into the school year, we, we have kind of set aside a yeah. dinner. And um, at that dinner, we just rehash how good God's been to us We've in the summer. We've done the same thing. Yeah, we and and part of the activity was creating the summer 
memory jar. So that was one of the things. And then, you know, the kids were like, hey, we went to Dairy Queen. Let's put that in there as if that's a great memory. Uh, for them, it is. But then all of a sudden, yeah. you're, you're sowing into them exactly. gratitude exactly. and gladness. So, again, the Summer Family Activity Guide, it is available on our website, or if you're a member here at the church, it should be in the foyer. But, man, let's turn this conversation, invite Mike Cosper to join us as we talk about everything from humans as worshipers to liturgy to culture. And so really excited about this conversation. It's going to be great. Well, we're excited to welcome Mike Cosper uh, to the podcast show. Mike is the author of three books, Faith Mapping, Rhythms of Grace, and then his latest is The Stories We Tell. He's a regular contributor at the Gospel Coalition. He also is uh, the pastor of worship and arts at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville uh, and is the founder of Sojourn Music. So uh, a very busy man. Mike, just as we get started here, um, Mad Men, it's over. Thoughts? Uh, gosh, I could talk for an hour. But yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't. Just, we, we were you happy? Were you unhappy? Were you? It, I mean, I, I, I liked the ending. Um, I, you know, I thought I thought they ventured a little towards kind of the syrupy sweet with the way that they ended Peggy and Pete's stories. Um, but I particularly liked Don's ending because I actually think it was a really a deeply cynical end to Don's story. Um, that. What I thought of was, was in, in the first episode of the show, he has this conversation with a woman, and, uh, and, and she starts talking about love, and he tells her, you know, love is something that guys like I invented to sell nylons. Um, what I saw at the end is she sort of, she sort of hits his rock bottom in this sort of hippie, dippy, pseudo-Buddhist community and experiences something of relief and redemption um, and then the moment it clicks over to the ad, to me, what that was saying, uh, there's a Coke ad, a Coke commercial at the end, to me, what that was saying was that um, he had, whatever he had learned, whatever he had experienced, he was co-opting it for the world of, of advertising once again. Like, he was right back on his, his previous cycle. He hasn't changed. Um, if transcendence exists, uh, it exists only in, in this world where guys like him are using it to sell you. Coca-Cola. So I liked the ending, even though I think that the ending was deeply, deeply cynical. It was very consistent with the, the story of the show. Yeah. At, at some point, we're not going to have a, we're not going to have a chance on, on this show to do this, but eventually I'd love to sit down over a drink and I need someone to help me with Radiohead. Um, because I feel like to be cool and to reach millennials, I need to like Radiohead and I just can't do it. So we, we don't have time on this show. I've had some of the guys on staff try to explain it to me. It's left me more confused and somewhat frightened. And um, I try to listen, Mike. I can't do it. So next time I'm in Louisville, I'm going to call you, and we can have a drink, and you can try to explain it to me. I'd be glad to. Let's okay. Now, um, one of my favorite things about the way you understand and talk about the worship service in the church and culture at large is is really your understanding that humans are primarily worshipers as opposed to thinkers. Could you unpack that a little bit for me when, when you talk that way, when you taught that way? Help us understand humans as primarily worshipers as opposed to thinkers. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of ways that you could kind of phrase that. And, and I would say, um, I think a synonym for saying that we're primarily worshipers is that we're primarily lovers. Um, we're, primarily, we're primarily people who are driven by desire. 
Um, James K. Smith has written a lot on this in the last few years um, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, and, and some other texts. Um, and really, his the roots for his stuff is really in Augustine um, as well, that this idea that what what primarily motiv- motivates us is is love. We're captivated by by a desire and longing and um, you know, this, this would be sort of rhythms in our lives of sort of longing and fulfillment. Um, that's what moves us forward in life. And so that's what accounts for the fact that Christians and non-Christians alike um, sort of live constantly with, with a cognitive dissonance. Or, you know, it's the Roman 7 dilemma of like, I know what I should do, but I want something more. And that, that wanting, that longing, that desire almost always wins out. Um, it's a really important concept for Christians to come to terms with because when we think of ourselves primarily as thinkers, we think that discipleship and growth and transformation is really about getting the right ideas in our head. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you've been a pastor for any time at all, you, you know the experience of you know the Christian that comes to you and is like, man, I've been doing my Bible studies, like I've memorized the Catechism, I've worked through systematic theology, I've done all these things, but nothing's changing in my life. What's wrong with me? Um, and the answer is nothing's wrong with you. It's that the habits and practices that you've taken on uh, as a Christian have not helped to sort of re- reorient your desires, the, the sort of deeper longings that are that are often sort of unexpressed and that often function in ways that we're completely unaware of. Now, now, do you think that runs then contrary to what I think probably most popularly today is called worldview thinking or, or having a worldview defined or having worldview lenses, which which seems to more define people by a set of intellectual beliefs? Right. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think that what we need, um, what we need is, I think worldview thinking is very helpful in a lot of ways, but what we need to, to begin to what we need to do is sort of expand our understanding of it so that we recognize that alongside alongside sort of the intellectual component of of worldview is a whole set of a whole set of stories and habits and practices that um, that that go to sort of supplement that worldview on the on the gut level uh, on the sort of pre precognitive intuitive level um, so if I live in a world where where I'm constantly shamed away from thinking about God and transcendence and spirituality, and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly being told to be realistic and to live in the quote-unquote real world, um, that's a story that's being told to me about how the world actually works. Yeah. If I hear that story enough times, it becomes very difficult for me to operate as if God were near and present. Um, so all of a sudden, all of my spiritual experiences are sort of clouded with suspicion. So is it is it the reality where... It, they're they're not either or one or the other, but the two work in concert together. But there's a greater reality of love that's kind of channeling and fueling all of this. It's not love against intellect; it's intellect that's playing into the greater story. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And I think our intellect is often easier to convince and convert than our than our loves are, because we have a hard time uh, we have a hard time articulating and getting at what our loves really are. Um, not to quote Jamie Smith all day, but I mean he's got a he's got a great quote where he talks about um, you, his, his quote is "You are what you love, but you might not love what you think you love." Hmm. Um, and I think that's I think that's a great way of sort of getting at it. We can we can convince ourselves of a lot of things very quickly intellectually, um, but what the heart desires, you know, I mean uh, the, the trouble of dieting is a great example of this. Like desire. You know, intellectually, I know that eating, you know, eating a box of Krispy Kreme is going to be terrible for me. Um, 
but I might do it anyway because there's a deeper sort of desire functioning um, that I don't know how to get at and transform. And so that's a very primitive example of something that, that you could see in, in all kinds of ways, like the way we're drawn to lustful things or, or greed or um, just a, just a general orientation of selfishness. So let, let's um, take this and, and kind of move it into the worship gathering, the weekend gathering, a discipleship strategy, and how pastors, leaders, church people, men and women should be thinking about discipleship, of, of coming into a weekend gathering, how that weekend gathering should be structured. I mean, the implications of that are, are pretty far-reaching and, and should be kind of top-of-mind considerations uh, in our discipleship and Christian formation. So let's let's talk about liturgy. Define that. It's kind of a word that, uh, you know, we, we laugh about it. Um, right. D- give us your definition of liturgy. When we talk about liturgy, that's our working definition for our conversation. Sure. And I love going back to sort of the most, the, mo- the most primitive definition of liturgy, which is simply it's a work, right? Um, had, you, had you gone to a, a lawyer, you know, uh, a few hundred years ago, the, the work that he would have done, he would have prepared you a liturgy. He would have had a work completed for you. So the idea of liturgy is, in the context of a worship gathering, is the liturgy is the work of the people. What are we showing up on Sunday morning to do and to get done? And understood that way, I think it really just kind of beautifully transforms the way we think about our Sunday gatherings, because, you know, North American evangelicals, our understanding of Sunday mornings is is so driven by kind of a revivalism culture, where you're coming to an event, and you're coming to be stirred and moved, and it's about, it's sort of about this performed thing that happens on the stage that results in you making further commitments and and being, being stirred by spectacle, so to speak. But the liturgy, when you understand the liturgy of the work of the people, then what you understand is that the church shows up on Sunday morning as the primary actor. They're the ones with the primary responsibility in terms of who's got work to get done today. It's the church. And the church is there to remember their confession, remember their covenant, um, to do that through singing, through prayer, through the Lord's Supper, through, you know, the practice of the sacraments. Um, in the broader sort of liturgical life of the church, this includes things like church discipline and, and all of this. This is the work of the church, being the church, remembering the gospel and, and sharing a confession together. So and when I talk about liturgy, I think that's the sort of the base thing. It's sort of what is our, what are the habits and practices that we, that we are doing in order to have our hearts shaped and formed by the gospel. That's good. Now, tell me then, I don't know if you've read Wilson's book yet on kind of pragmatism and and kind of I don't know that I want to call it liturgy, but but do you then have some issue with some of the kind of happy clappy um, kind of I think David Brooks called it the arena culture that that's starting to take place in a lot of churches where it's far more of a concert, a, a well thought out. This is a theme, not necessarily a gospel theme, but you know we're going to do a song uh, about blessing because we're talking about blessing and and instead of there being like i know you wrote in rhythms of grace uh, about we're telling the story of the gospel in our gathering that it becomes much more of a um rather a, a concert and 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 it's not really formed well in regards to the consideration of how people there are being um chiseled or reminded of the story yeah yeah no i definitely would because i think that you know i think the the great insight of of sort of church history in, in the practices of the, of the church 
is that what we do when we gather sort of forms and shapes us for all of life. And so if we think about if we think about the Sunday gathering as an opportunity to rehearse some things that are going to shape the way that I pray and the way that I see the world and and really I think get to the get get to that level of sort of shaping our desires, shaping our intuitions, shaping our 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 sort of reactive primary orientation to the world. Um, liturgy and worship do that because what what because we are the the primary performer, so to speak. Like yeah. I'm doing these practices as opposed to the primary performer being somebody on a stage who's putting on a great show and you know there's there's a place for there's a place for sort of the, that revivalist impulse the revivalist impulse that says like we want to experience God, we want to be transformed by kind of a transcendent musical, theatrical kind of encounter. Like I I don't want to just throw that out completely as as having no value because it it does and and the revivalist movement did good things for the church in some ways. But for that to become the primary way that the church understands what Sunday mornings are about and what the, the day-to-day life of the church is about is, is really problematic because it essentially what the church is doing is they're delegating their responsibilities. Like, that's the church's job, yeah. to sing, to pray, to confess. Um, it, you know, and it, it's kind of a weird, it's almost like a, a, a you know, a, a clergy-laity distinction where the lady doesn't just shows up as a spectator, um, almost like pre-Reformation Roman Catholicism, where everything's yeah. delegated, the religious people are going to get the religious work done, and, and I sort of show up and receive grace as it overflows. So a quick, I, I think I can hear some questions that I think some, some brothers that I've spent some time with having conversations like this are going to have, particularly with the um, kind of quote-unquote missional movement um, and, and really a, a real zeal, which is I think is a good right zeal to see people come to know and, and love Jesus Christ via evangelism and the proclamation of the word. Are, when, when Sojourn is, is really acting on this liturgy, um, it, are you guys explaining every week in every moment via basically what's going on so that the unbeliever there would go, oh, okay, I see what they're doing? And is the unbeliever excluded from some of these things? Yeah, great question. Um, and the answer is uh, is sort of yes and no. Um, we we are we're very intentional during a couple of seasons in the, the during the church year to to explain everything that we do and to sort of be self consciously be um, walking through the liturgy so that people understand like, hey, we're this is about a dialogue where we remember that God's holy, we're sinners, Jesus saves us, Jesus sends us, and we remember those things throughout this whole service. So, so again, like a couple during a couple of seasons of the year, maybe like four to six weeks at a time, uh, around the fall and around the first of the year, we'll be very we'll be very sort of overt with those practices and intentional. Um, but most of the rest of the year, um, those practices just sort of continue, and and I think honestly, in terms of the, the formational aspect of the, the life of the church, um, it. It works better. It works on a deeper level when it's a little more subtle. Um, when rather than sort of, because I think the the temptation to explain it is we want to make sure that people understand what we're doing. Um, the the temptation to not explain it is because as someone is immersed in an experience, they're yeah. they're they're busy having an experience rather than cognitively trying to sort of make connections together. Um, they're focused first and foremost on. Hey, God has spoken. Let's respond. 
as opposed to going, we open with a call to worship because we want to remember that God spoke before we did. Yeah. Um, they're they're acting it out rather than thinking about it too much. Um, not that, again, not that, like, you throw the cognitive baby out with the bathwater. Um, you you want to sort of catechize people so they understand it, but actually sort of immersion in the experience is the better, um, the better formative tool. When it comes to unbelievers, you know, the only things that we really, that we really, we're very intentional in excluding unbelievers from the Lord's Supper. Right. Um, and just saying, this isn't for you. Um, this is for people who've, you know, who've put their faith and trust in Jesus. Um, but, you know, with the rest of the service, um, you know, our approach is very similar. We, our encouragement to unbelievers is come and immerse yourself in, this pra- in these practices. Um, come and participate week in and week out. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the the Irish way of evangelism, I guess, like, you know, be a part, you know, participate and, um, and see if, if these things don't have an effect, you know, as you, as you rehearse this story week in and week out with, with God's people, see if that doesn't actually, by in and of itself, increase its plausibility for you. So, Mike, I, I kind of want to move the conversation. This is super helpful and really insightful. I'm grateful for it. And, and thinking about Again, going back to the reality that that humans are worshipers, all humans are worshipers, and the church has a certain liturgy that is going to draw upon and evoke that loving response from her people, but then the culture also has a liturgy. Um, The culture is also producing a work, so to speak, because they too are are lovers and worshipers. They're just not lovers and worshipers of the one true God. So... In a sense, the church has a very real kind of counter-liturgy, or should be having a counter-liturgy that is um, kind of undoing some of the liturgies that we may all be caught up in culturally, so to speak, day in and day out. Is that... Talk on that. Yeah, I I think the best way to understand the way that the world is... um, uh, the way the liturgies of the world is actually to sort of reverse your reverse engineer the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so in that book, you know, the, the teacher goes on this journey where he's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go experience everything the world tells me is going to make me happy. And I'm going to live out those stories to their, to their ultimate ends and see what happens. Right. Um, because, you know, what he, what he goes after in that book are, you know, it's sex everything. and love yeah, and totally. money and power and, and even just like, uh, even just religious righteousness. Right. You know, he goes after that and says, you know, this doesn't amount to anything. I'm it's still going to die. It's vain, yeah. Um, and so I think if you, if, you, if you think of it through that lens, what you can look at, you can look at the world of pop culture, you can look at the world of, um, even sort of the world of, of, like, the American dream and the stories that we tell, you know, culturally, stories we tell about what, what academia offers you or what Wall Street offers you or what these different things are. And... You know, to borrow a to borrow a phrase from uh, from Augustine, you know, these are visions of the good life. These are these are visions of um, you know the good life comes to us through money or power or sex or wh- whatever that is. Um, so those stories are being told all the time, whether it's you know whether it's something very formal and, and classical like a like a philosopher or like a Shakespearean play or uh, even in sort of the most base levels of pop culture like reality television. Nonetheless, there's some sort of you know, vision of the good life or vision of, of, of ultimate hope that's being held out in those things. Um, so worship as a counter-liturgy has to be very intentional in saying, and sort of calling out the, the alternate, those alternate visions. And, 
in in the life of the church, in the preaching of the church, in the community of the church. We have to be very intentional about deconstructing those things in the way that the book of Ecclesiastes does and, and the scriptures as a whole sort of testify to, like, these ends don't ultimately satisfy. So don't be surprised. Okay, so so taking that, taking the deconstructing of the church and and recognizing that that's what we do as we gather and and obviously we 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 come to gather so that we're sent out and in our in our being out when we're not corporately gathered what does it look like for the church then to engage in in the cultural litur- liturgies of our day the ones that are incomplete and insufficient and lacking yeah. uh, you, you know like what what's the grid what's the standard for for us to consider, do I need to consume this? Do I not need to consume? Is this constructing me? Am I consuming this so that I can deconstruct it later? Is you know, yeah. and then and then let's just take it down and talk about what's a parent to do, you know? And let's yeah. talk about let's talk about the big kids first. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, great question. So the way I, I like to sort of think about it is there's sort of two there's sort of two dynamics at work, and you know the first thing that the first thing that uh, every Christian thinking about engaging culture needs to, to get a grasp on is kind of a, a basic theology of, of Christian liberty. And uh, the, way, the way we talk about it, the way, the way I've sort of grown to talk about it is through uh, its three C's. I'm a Baptist, so it's an alliteration. Um, there's conscience. You're speaking my language, context, bro. <laughs> there's, there's, there's conscience, context, and community. Um, and so... You know, context is, is an important one because when you talk about just language in general, um, you know, what offended your grandmother uh, might not offend your next door neighbor, uh, or you know, the you know the the, the community around you. Um, when you talk about your conscience, it's you know, your conscience is sort of your first line of defense, and it's not completely reliable. But what's what's for certain is if your conscience is kind of ringing and saying maybe you shouldn't be watching this. The wisest thing to do is to not fear over that and and go ahead with your consumption. And then community is really important because you need Christian friends around you um, with whom you're sort of discussing what what media are you consuming and how is it affecting you. And um, because sometimes your friends are going to be the, the best ones to kind of say, "Hey, we we think you've we think you've dived headfirst into the deep end, and, and you're not. It's probably not good for your soul." Um, when it comes to sort of the media itself and the way we, that we think about that, I always like to think of it as like there's always there's always sort of two layers to um, to, to all media. One is um, this idea of sort of authorial intent. What story is this person trying to tell? Like what what are they what are they holding out as a vision of the good life? What are they what are they saying is ultimately going to make me you know make make a person happy? And then as Christians, we have the opportunity to to hear that version of the story and, and then to place it in the context of this bigger story of creation, fall, redemption, confirmation, and, and say, how does that story, how is that story rooted in the longings that emerge in our story? So this person's holding out love, you know, um, love is the ultimate, you know, uh, romantic comedies do this. They hold out, you know, once you get married, once you, once you find love, you're going to be ultimately happy. And so as a Christian, we can do sort of, we can read that story two ways. We can read it through the lens of the story being told itself and say, hey, there's a danger here. Uh, love isn't going to ultimately make you happy. Uh, and you get married, you marry a sinner, et cetera, et cetera. You know? right. So we can deconstruct it from that lens, but we can also approach it from a different lens that says, um, but at the, that, that underneath 
underneath the story that's being told there is a deeper longing that that longing for unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, um, a longing for a happy ever after that the gospel actually provides. So I think both ways of seeing culture are are really important. That's helpful. That uh, so I I just want to for the sake of listeners to go over the Christian liberty kind of the framework that you just described conscience, sure. context, and community, the three C's there. Very, very helpful. And you built all three of those out in the stories we tell. So, Yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay, so let's take it down even more as a parent thinking about the liturgies or the stories that my children and your children are ingesting or digesting or receiving. Um, what's the framework there? Do you have some insight? You know, I... My kids are really young. <laughs> How young is really young? How old are your kids? They're, they're eight and six. Okay. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I feel, I feel uh, hesitant to, to offer too much advice here because I'm really trying to figure it out. Well, then let's, well, we let's just, give advice to parents of eight and six-year-olds and 12-year-olds. Yeah. Like, would you be considered by other parents to be like, dang, I can't believe that Cosper lets his kids listen to that or watch that or... Are you big? No, no, we're pretty, we're pretty, I'm more, I mean, I'm more restrictive than my own parents were. Um, so, you know, there's movies that, uh, th- there's a lot of movies that I saw when I was. <laughs> that's not saying a whole lot in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, that's, yeah, yeah. I don't even know what that <laughs> means. I can't listen to Andrew Dice Clay. I don't let my, let my kids listen to him. <laughs> yeah, so we're really restrictive about what we, what we let our kids see. And then the thing we're trying to sort of the thing we're trying to sort of get get into their minds from the very beginning is to, to not watch anything mindlessly. You know, to be sensitive to like what's what's being told, what's what's happening. You know, and so they'll watch some things sometimes, and we'll you know um, we'll we'll watch the show with them, or we'll 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 catch them watching something you know on Netflix or something like that um, that they've turned on like a I, I'm. The only example I can think of actually right now is a My Little Pony show that they were watching one time. Magic. And we just noticed, like, the, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, we just noticed sort of the, the, the tone of the show, the way that the characters are speaking to each other, and that sort of thing. You know, it was like, oh, this isn't going to be good. Um, but rather than just sort of cut them off from it completely, um, we tried to sort of engage them on it and say, okay, like, you're into the story. You want to know how the story ends. That's fine. We can finish this, but let's talk about what's being, you know, what's being said here. You know, um, how are these characters treating each other? What, you know, and just sort of trying to engage them on the level of, of like virtue formation. Like, like, do you think this is a good way to talk and all of this? Um, and I think alongside of that, like on, on the bigger picture, you know, when we went to see, when we went to see Frozen, and when we went to see, uh, I think it was maybe one of the Kung Fu Panda movies or whatever, we tried to be real intentional afterwards to sort of talk about the story and to make connections on that level of longing, like, um, you know, with the, the, the virtue that was sort of held out in Frozen of love and self-sacrifice. Like, what, how does that connect with the story that we tell every week when we go to church and when we, when we talk about Jesus in our home? Like, how, how do we see parallels? And uh, so on that end, it, it, for us, it's, it's a matter of trying to ask a whole lot of questions yeah. as our kids view media um, with the hope that by asking questions, it teaches them to not consume 
media but, mindlessly. Right, right. And I, I think something that, that you said at the beginning where you said, hey, this we're really restrictive. And yeah. as a parent, the reason I'm restrictive is, one, I'm recognizing the power of liturgy. I'm recognizing the power mm-hmm. of story. I'm recognizing the power uh, of influence. And and to be mindful of that and, and not take it lightly, because you're right, it, there is... There is a story that's being told. There's a story about yeah, there's life. No, there's there's no neutral stories right. out there. There is there's one no that such it, thing as harmless entertainment. Correct. Yeah, and so just about. to be mindful of that, and and I love how you just described interacting, engaging, asking my kids about this, and 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 using that tool, uh, just kind of leverage good, helpful conversations. And so, let's talk about helpful helpful examples. What what are you watching? What are you engaging in? And again, I know this goes back to conscience, context, community, but um, is there something that you that you would say, I would commend this to Christians for their consideration? <laughs> just put you on the spot um, there. Yeah, it does put me on the spot. And maybe it could be broad. It could be, uh, I, love, I love watching sports because sports tells this type of story. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say you need to listen to music because it, it can be broad. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you know, we we are, it's a cliche and it's an obnoxious phrase, but I, I don't know how else to describe it, but, like, we really do live in, in kind of a golden age for, for TV drama. And um, uh, there's a great book by a guy named Alan Steppenwall. He's a, a TV critic with a, a website called Hit Fix, and it was called The Revolution Was Televised. And um, what he does is he kind of traces how sort of cable TV dramas um, have evolved over the last over the last decade, starting you know starting with some of the HBO stuff from around 2001, and um, I I personally am kind of drawn to that to those stories in that format for a couple of reasons. The biggest one being that it's almost you know Mad Men's a perfect example of this. That that show was more like a a, a novel than a classic TV drama. Um, the the expectation of the writers of that show. Um, like the writers of a lot of TV dramas, is that when you turn on an episode, you're caught up. Um, you've seen everything that's come before. They're not going to rehash a whole lot of storyline for you. And so what it allows them to do is, you know, over seven seasons of Mad Men, is to go, is to go really deep into the, the exploration of these characters' lives yeah. and their struggles and their suffering. Um, and so it, to me, it's a great window on the human experience. Um, I also think, like, sort of in the, the world of, of streaming technology and all of this, it's a, there's actually an advantage to that for Christians. My conscience is real sensitive about, about, a, lot of, about a lot of content. And so we watch, we watch almost all this stuff kind of with uh, remote controls in hand, uh, ready to skip, you know, ready to skip ahead, you know, by a scene or, or whatever, um, because there is objectionable content, you know, mm-hmm. and, Different people draw those, draw those lines different places. Some people would say, I don't, I don't even want it on my TV, and I completely understand that. Um, for us and our family, there are certain shows that we watch, um, but we always watch knowing, hey, we, you know, the, the remote control's ready, we'll skip the scene, we'll fast forward, or we'll turn it off if it just, you know, there's, there comes a point with some of these things where you just have to turn them off. So those are, uh, that's primarily what I'm watching these days. I do love, um, we live in an interesting time for, for TV comedies as well, you know, with, with shows like, in the last few years anyway, shows like 30 Rock and uh, Arrested Development, where kind of the pace of the show and at the same time the way that the show is kind of parodying 
culture at, at large is, 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 I think, is really brilliant. Yeah, there's no doubt. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being on with us today. If you're listening and and this has created more questions than than answers, or you liked something we said that we didn't have time to to build out, I don't know that we've ever done this before on uh, one of the podcast shows. But I couldn't commend more if the liturgy stuff got you and the understanding of uh, really how to think through telling our story, our liturgy in a worship gathering. Rhythms of Grace is an, is a compelling, excellent book. And also, uh, if the story side of things really kind of something uh, stirred up in you and you want to know more about that, Mike's new book, The Stories We Tell, is excellent. Mike, thanks for being on, brother. Yeah, I, thanks, I Mike. just, to affirm you publicly, um, the the way God's wired you, the way you think, it's just, it's had a big impact on me. Uh, and so, man, I just want to thank you publicly. And so, blessings, brother, on uh, all your work there, and not just Louisville, but really uh, with all the influence God's given you. And, and again, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast show. Uh, we'll be back next month and have another episode for you then. Uh, and until then, uh, be blessed. 